You're listening to Once Upon a Time, a teaching series from Formation Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. In this series, we take a fresh look at some of the most familiar stories of Jesus in hopes of being changed from the inside out. For more information about Formation Church, visit our website at formationslc.com. I want to start this morning talking about playing pretend. Now, pretend, or what more formally we might call imaginative play, is actually an essential part of childhood development. And its primary value lies in the fact that pretend play uh, uses all parts of the brain. And so it's just critical for a child's development. It helps a child process real-life experiences. It, It aids in the development of social and emotional skills. It also provides a space to hone decision-making and problem-solving skills. And so I don't know about you, but I just still have very vivid memories of the prominent place that playing pretend was in my life growing up. And so we had this stretch of childhood, my childhood, where we lived in a very wooded area of rural uh, Northern California. And I remember spending very long days playing pretend. I'd take my like little archery set, which I still can't believe my parents let me have, and, uh, and I would pretend to be Robin Hood, and sticks almost immediately became lightsabers after I saw The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, so I could pretend to be Luke Skywalker. I turned jump ropes into whips so that I could pre- wait, so I could pretend to be Indiana Jones, in case you thought I was going anywhere weird with that. I had this really unfortunate phase where I wore what I can only describe as like a really ugly black fedora because I wanted to be Zorro. So... I didn't say I was cool, I said I pretended a lot. So, so much of childhood for so many of us is spent in pretend play. Now here's the thing about that. Playing pretend is almost endlessly profitable for children, but it can be problematic for adults. And I don't say that to imply that we should not play pretend with our kids or anything like that. Here's what I mean. We have a tendency to pretend that we need God's help far less than we actually do. And there's an understandable reason for this, because pretending is an expression of avoidance. And avoidance is anything that we do, it's any action that a person takes to escape from difficult thoughts or feelings. And so sometimes we practice avoidance through substance abuse, but it can also be things like food or entertainment, but we can also practice avoidance by pretending. And the truth is, we pretend as a means of avoiding a deeper awareness of our need for strength, a deeper awareness of our need for peace, for healing, and for forgiveness. The reality is, it is difficult to feel that we have hurt God. And Scripture tells us that when we sin, when we do what God says not to do or we don't do the things that he calls us to do, that it actually grieves the very heart of God's Spirit. And it's difficult for us to feel that. It's difficult for us to admit our inevitable weakness and our need for God's strength because we just don't have it on our own. It's difficult for us to acknowledge and to sit with our lack of peace. It's difficult for us to acknowledge that our woundedness is beyond our own ability to heal. And so as a result, instead of feeling those difficult emotions, instead of sitting with those difficult thoughts, we pretend. And the biblical word for that pretending is the word self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is spiritual pretending. 
Now, technically speaking, it's defined as a certainty, especially an unfounded one, that one is totally correct or morally superior. Spiritual or self-righteousness is pretending that we don't need God to the extent that we actually do. And the problem with self-righteousness, self-righteousness is that nothing poisons our relationship with God, nothing poisons our relationship with ourselves, nothing poisons our relationships with one another like self-righteousness. And so today, we're going to sit with a story from Jesus about the immense relational value of actually embracing our need before God, specifically our need for forgiveness. We're going to talk about both the effects of embracing our need, and then also some simple means of cultivating our awareness of that need. Because for most of us, we've spent so long in this pattern of pretending, we aren't even aware of the degree to which we need God. And so to start, here's the big idea that we're going to see come out of this story in Luke's gospel this morning. It's this. If you like to take notes, write this down. Love for Jesus is formed in the fire of need. Love for Jesus is formed in the fire of need. So what we're going to see is some very simple math in this story, which is all I'm capable of, is very simple math. But we see simple math work its way out in this story from Jesus. And it goes like this. The more we embrace the size of our need for the forgiveness of Jesus, the more we will love him for how generously he offers it to us. But the inverse is also true. The more we pretend that we don't need it, the less we are going to love him. And this is the lesson of the story of the two debtors. And so if you have a Bible or an app that you like to read on, uh, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, that's okay. The scripture is going to be on the screen. We're going to be in Luke 7, specifically verses 36 to 50. And I want to just jump into this story, and then we'll build some context around it in just a second, all right? So Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, Luke starts like this. He says, Then... One of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. And when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. All right, so pause there for a second. One thing that you're going to notice about the parable that we're going to look at this morning, because this is not it. If you're like, this is a weird parable. It's not a parable yet. The story we're going to look at is actually a story within a story. And so Luke places Jesus here at a shared meal with a Pharisee whose name we're going to learn in just a moment was Simon. Now, if you don't know, and this is so critical for our understanding of what's taking place in this story, one of the commitments that the Pharisees held most deeply was ritual purity. And so all of these rules that they lived by were all informed by their commitment to remain ritually pure before God. And the truth is, it is nearly impossible for us to conceive of how important this ritual purity was for them. You know that some ancient Jews even argued that uncleanness was worse than bloodshed. Just let that sink in for a second. So they thought killing, in its most intense fundamentalist version of this belief, 
that bloodshed would be better than being unclean before God, which I'm pretty sure would make one unclean, by the way. little irony in that belief. But as a result, they viewed, the Pharisees in particular, viewed meals like this one as opportunities for study with what they called haberim, or partners in purity. And so it's easy for us to shake our heads at the response of this Pharisee uh, toward this woman, but we only respond that way because, number one, we don't really grasp how deep this commitment to ritual purity was, and then, number two, we don't grasp how culturally inappropriate this entire scenario would have been for them. And so that part we can flesh out a little bit. So somewhere in the course of this meal, an unnamed woman with a big reputation for being a sinner interrupts and begins a series of what can at best be described as scandalous behaviors in this culture. Now Luke does not, commentators have been guessing for years, but Luke does not specify what the nature of her sin was. And so we should be careful about that as well. But what he does make very, very clear is that that behavior, whatever it was, is what she was most known for. So when she was seen walking down the street, people thought she's a sinner because of whatever was going on in her life. And so the text does give us at least four details that point to the scandal of this story. First, women did not participate with men in these meals. So her very presence there would have been highly uncommon. But secondly, she proceeds to cry on Jesus' bare feet as he is reclined at this dinner. So remember, in formal meals like this, the table was set very, very low, and there were pillows surrounding it, and people would lay, typically with their head facing the table, on one arm and eat with the other, with their feet away from the table, which is a good call because that would be disgusting if they were toward the table. So she comes up behind Jesus, and she just begins to cry profusely onto his feet. Now, I think that we can probably all agree that that would be at best awkward in any culture whatsoever, but it was highly inappropriate in this one. And third, and probably most scandalous, is that she chooses to let down her hair and to wipe her tears from his feet with her hair. Now, this was seen as a shameful and seductive act for any woman to let her hair down in a public setting. Like, the only equivalence that we probably have is literally, and I'm not saying this to be like, shocking in any way, but the closest equivalence we would have would be like if a woman went into a public space topless. The effect that that would have where you'd be like, that was a choice. That would, <laughs> that's the closest thing that we probably would have in our culture to what the collective response would have been to this woman. One, coming into the room. Two, beginning to cry on the feet of Jesus. And then three, to let down her hair and begin to wipe his feet with them. One commentator even writes, were it not for her tears, this act would border on obscene. And then finally, she anoints Jesus' feet with perfume, which again, to anoint feet was highly unusual. That was not a normative practice. But in addition to that, to anoint them with perfume would have been seen as extravagant or even offensive because of the monetary value of that perfume. And so in short, she violates every single social norm of her day, and this Pharisee, Simon, is wrongly but understandably appalled. We read these stories and we tend to be judgy toward the judgy people when we need to understand if you were there, you'd be the judgy person too. (laughs) That's the whole reason that they're in the Bible for us in this way. So he's wrong, but it's understandable. And curiously, Jesus' refusal to stop or shame this woman prompts this very swift internal judgment from Simon the Pharisee. He concludes there is simply no way that Jesus could be a true prophet. 
because he just allows this to play out. Look at verse 40. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which one of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one he forgave more. Now, before we unpack this very simple parable or story, I want you to take note of the irony that prompts it. The text tells us that the Pharisee Simon concluded to himself, that's the exact phrase used, to himself that Jesus surely could not be a prophet or he would know what kind of woman was touching him. Yet, even though this Pharisee never verbalized his conclusion, he didn't say that out loud, that was to himself, Jesus does know, in fact, exactly what's going on in his heart and mind. And and so rather than call him on that directly, Jesus proceeds to tell a very subversive story. And it all starts with a creditor who has two men that owe him money. One of those men owes the equivalent of more than a year and a half's wages, and the second owes two months' wages. And in response to their inability to pay him back, the creditor just graciously chooses to forgive their debts, meaning he just wipes away any requirement that they pay him back. And so then Jesus ends with the question, as he is prone to do at the end of teaching a parable, and he says, so which one of them will love him more? To which Simon replies, I suppose the one that he forgave more. Now, if we put ourselves into this parable and imagine ourselves in that situation, that answer from Simon is pretty obvious. The one who is forgiven, the more one is forgiven, the more overwhelmed with gratitude they will be. That's the general point here. And so imagine another scenario, okay? Imagine that you are out for a nice dinner with someone But as the meal finishes and the check comes, and if you've ever had this experience, it's a very awkward one, as the check comes, you realize you have forgotten your wallet. And the restaurant that you're at is stuck in the dark ages and they don't take Apple Pay. So, as a result, the person you're with pays for your meal. Now, if that has ever happened to you, my guess is we've all responded the same way. We begin to promise, I'm going to pay you back for this. But then imagine that they reply to you and say, hey man, don't don't even worry about it, it's on me. Now, if you've experienced that, my guess is that any one of us would be grateful for that act of generosity. But I want you to compare that experience with the story of Robert Smith. Now, if you don't know, Robert Smith is a billionaire philanthropist and businessman. And in 2019, during his commencement speech at Morehouse College in Atlanta, he announced that he was going to pay off the student loan debts of the entire graduating class, which is amazing. But I was thinking about, now, two, two, two things happened in that moment. Number one, anyone that who had taken out loans is overwhelmed with gratitude. If you were a parent sitting there who paid out of pocket for your kid's education, you must have been so furious by this act of generosity because you're like, really? We could have had this whole thing for free? But listen, the total amount of the debt was around $34 million. And it was a massive relief, as you can imagine, for the graduates who were struggling to repay their student loans. And this act of forgiveness not only helped the students financially, but also gave them a sense of hope for their future. And so I want you to put these two experiences, if you would, side by side and think about them for a second. The person who is forgiven the debt of a dinner is going to be grateful. Agreed? Like, unless you're a monster, you're going to be thankful that someone would do that for you. 
But the person forgiven thousands of dollars in student loan debt is most likely going to be changed in some way, maybe forever. Why? Because the more one is forgiven, the more overwhelmed with gratitude they will be. And that is Jesus' entire point. Look at verse 44. Then turning to the woman, Jesus said to Simon. I love that detail. He looks at the woman, but he's talking to Simon. And he says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she, with her tears, has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, even more than in our own culture, this one was marked by tremendous power disparity. And that was especially true for women. And so women lived in a very vulnerable state in general. And this woman in particular is in dire straits. And Jesus' response to her reminds us of his attitude and his action toward those who are weak and vulnerable. He loves them and he protects them rather than exploiting them. And we see that in these closing verses. And I would argue that Jesus' question to Simon is a very significant one. He says, do you see this woman? See, the real problem was Simon's self-righteousness had blinded his ability to truly see her. Sure, he saw her reputation, but he didn't see her. He didn't see her pain. He didn't see her vulnerability. He didn't see her tremendous need. He just saw her reputation for sin. But Jesus saw her. He saw this woman's behavior in this moment as humble gratitude born out of deep faith. Now, according to cultural custom, Simon, the Pharisee, was not obligated to do all of these things that this woman did. But he would have been responsible to give Jesus water to wash his feet when he showed up. And a kiss would have been the appropriate greeting for an honored guest. But Simon doesn't do any of that. And if we ask, ask ourselves why, the answer is that Simon and this woman had vastly different attitudes toward Jesus. Simon saw no need for the forgiveness that Jesus offered. But this woman knew that she was desperate. She knew that she was a mess. She knew that Jesus was her only hope. See, the gift of her reputation was that it removed her ability to hide behind self-righteousness like Simon. And the point of the story isn't that Simon had less sin than the woman. The point is about awareness. Simon was content to pretend he was good, propping himself up on his own performance. But this woman couldn't do that. Everyone knew she was a sinner. She knew she was a sinner, objectively. And Jesus' response to this woman is a profound example of how he treats those who are drowning in shame. See, our fear is that he's going to respond like the Pharisee, 
reminding us of the source of our shame, reminding us why we should feel ashamed. But not once does Jesus do that here. Not once does Jesus do that at any place in the entire four Gospels that we have his life and ministry. Not only is he gentle, not only is he compassionate, not only is he kind, but notice he praises this woman's embarrassing act of humility to this self-righteous Pharisee, which teaches us, I would say, a very important lesson, which is this. Jesus loves lavish acts of humility. He loves them. And lavish acts of humility flow from the lives of those who grasp just how much they've been forgiven. And so here's the real question. If what Jesus is saying is true, that love for him is formed in the fire of our awareness, of our need for him, if that's true, how do we go about increasing rather than diminishing our awareness of need for his forgiveness? And so let me just close by inviting you to a simple daily practice for cultivating a deeper awareness of sin and forgiveness. And so it starts by you just making the decision at what's like, maybe you're a morning person, maybe you're a night person, maybe it's a midday thing, but set aside the time that is necessary for you to do this. And the truth is, even as little as five focused minutes for these five things will add up to immense help in your life as uh, it culminates and continues to increase. So five things that are critical for cultivating a sense of awareness. Here's the first one. Number one, it starts with resting with Jesus. Rest with Jesus. So you're going to spend just a few moments in a quiet space, taking some deep breaths and inviting the Holy Spirit to shine his spotlight on what he wants you to see. I heard someone say recently, and I've seen this to be very true in my own life, The Spirit of God never works in our lives with a floodlight, showing us everything that is broken, everything that is wrong. He's gentle, and instead he uses a spotlight. It's like, this is what you can handle, this is what I'm going to show you. If you saw the hole, you'd lose your mind. So the Spirit of God doesn't use a floodlight, he uses a spotlight. So rest with Jesus, calming your heart, calming your body by breathing, and then just ask that the Holy Spirit would shine his spotlight on what he wants you to see. Step number two is to review my day. And this is what we do through the prayer of examen. And so I want you to imagine that you are scrubbing through a YouTube video of your day. This is the, the, the imagery that I've found the most helpful because we're all familiar with YouTube. So imagine that you're scrubbing through a YouTube video of your day. And that brings you to step three, which is to recognize your shortcomings. And so hit pause, if you will, every place that the Spirit prompts because there's a shortcoming somewhere in the course of the day, and we have them all throughout our day. That could be a sin of omission, where there is something that Jesus has called us to do that we have not done. could be a sin of commission. We've done something that God has told us not to do. It could be something that we say, words that are spoken or the tone with which they're spoken. It could be something that we actually did, but it can be as simple as an attitude or a thought process that we have. But the point is, rather than shy away from that, rather than justify it, rather than pretend it didn't happen, recognize it. And in so doing, confess that for the shortcoming that it was. Paul says in Romans that we all fall short. We all have shortcomings in our lives. So recognize those and confess those to God. 
That brings us to step number four, which is to receive God's grace. Now, I want to encourage you to stick with this uh, video imagery, okay? And so after you have recognized a shortcoming and you have confessed that to God, I want you to imagine that Jesus highlights that portion of your day on that video and clicks delete. Because that's what forgiveness is. Jesus wipes the debt. And so receive that grace from him. And then finally, number five, is to again rest with Jesus. Now that might sound redundant. You might feel like I forced that just to get to five points, but that's not the case. I would argue that this is a deeply formative step, and here's why. We have to reverse the felt belief that performance is the basis of our relationship with Jesus. Jesus never said, come to me and perform for my love. Not once. Instead, Jesus did say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Resting in Jesus is the human heart's true home. And so we close this practice by just simply resting with him, allowing the reality that we are accepted, that we are loved, that we are forgiven, that scripture says that God delights in us. And we just sit with that and rest with Jesus. Love for Jesus is formed in the fire of need. So let's not use self-righteousness as a crutch on which to prop ourselves up, pretending that we are less in need than we truly are. Instead, let's do the uncomfortable work of cultivating a greater awareness of our need each day. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we thank you that our performance, that our goodness, that our failures, that our successes, none of that is the foundation on which you choose to relate with us. The foundation of our relationship with you is the perfect life, the sacrificial death, and the victorious resurrection of Jesus. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you would bring a great shift in our hearts. We are all prone to pretend. We are all prone to put forth an image that is not accurate. We are all prone to believe that we are less in need of your help, of your grace, of your mercy, of your strength, of your peace than we truly are. And and instead, we, through self-righteousness, continue to grapple for control. But I pray that you would move our hearts to a place of surrender. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not know you, I pray that you would move their heart to surrender now for the very first time that they would turn from sin, find forgiveness, and enter into relationship with Jesus. And Lord, for the rest of us, we just pray that you would help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to see the reality of things, the reality of our shortcomings and the grace that is there to meet, meet us in them. And I pray that as we continue to work that process, that you would grow greater and greater and greater love inside of us for you and for one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.